and welcome to the third episode of Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast. As usual, I am your host, Adam Jesiorski, here as usual with your other host, Josh Neenpont. Welcome. Thanks for coming back again. And today <clears throat> we are um, recording on the 16th of February, talking about a slightly timely topic. Um, and that is we're talking about our dating struggles. Oh, good one. Very nice. <laughs> and before you uh, get any ideas here, actually, we're talking about dating in terms of generating chronologies or uh, sets of dates to accompany sediment records in paleolimnology. That's right. Stick with us. We're going to be talking about how we date the sediments, how we age the sediments. Maybe that's a better way to say it in order to not make it a, a, just a cheesy Valentine's Day plug. But a really important topic, right? The idea being that the depth of a sediment core alone is not going to be uh, a useful indicator of how old that sediment is because where that core is taken from will greatly depend on how quickly that sediment builds up and therefore how old the material at any given depth actually is. That's right. And um, the, there's a large number of reasons for this. Uh, sedimentation rates on their own can vary massively um, depending on the morphology, I guess, or the shape of the lake where stuff's coming in from. If you're close to like a uh, inflow or stream versus, um, uh, you know, out in the deepest basin. Um, but then also uh, sedimentation is often a uh, a function of productivity. So when you're looking at Arctic versus temperate versus tropical environments, a lot more stuff is going to be coming into tropical versus Arctic, where there's not a whole lot of stuff growing on the landscape. Um, and then from there, landscape changes, um, which can be gradual over time, messing up, um, you know, a otherwise um, constant sedimentation rate. But then also you have catastrophic events. Um, such as landslides. And uh, again, uh, we are based in Canada. We have a northern bias and Josh works in the far north. And when, you know, things like slumps, which not everyone be familiar with, um, but are a major thing on the northern landscape, we have a large amount of the catchment of a particular lake falling into the lake given uh, thawing permafrost. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dating anything in the north is always going to be an issue, and that's something we could talk about later in the podcast because it's an issue for um, using radioisotopes to date, which is sort of the basis and the the bulk of what we'll be talking about. But when you have such a short growing season, you end up with a lot lower productivity uh, overall, and the duration, even if it's a very productive system, the duration that there is pro uh, production going on in a given year is going to be low, and then there's the potential, and I guess in any system really, for there to be catastrophic sort of um, sediment influxes, including slumps, which are just a, a specific form of landslide that occurs primarily on the shorelines of lakes, which is um, why it might impact the, the bed of the, of the lake and bring in a lot of different sediments. So that is one reason that we need to be able to account for how old the mud is in that given slice of the sediment core. And there are lots of ways that that can be done. And the easiest way, and I personally have never worked with a lake like this, there are a very small subset of lakes where you can actually tell it uh, how, how old the various sediments are visually 
um, because of things called VARVs, which are basically alternating light-dark layers that form naturally um, in relation to seasonal differences. Have you ever worked on a VARV lake? I have never even seen a truly varved sediment core that I that I know of. I've seen laminated sediments that there's some sort of variation in color that can be not fully annually laminated, but seasonal or or things like that. But I've never actually worked or seen even a fully varved lake. Yeah, me neither. But apparently, these unicorns do exist, and you'd be able to just tell how old a particular slice is by counting down the number of varves. But uh, it's a pretty specific set of circumstances, um, both in terms of the seasonality and uh, the catchment that allowed us to form. So most of the time, that's not an option. Um, so then there are a couple of other things that can be used to um, get an age, or at least a rough age, um, from relative markers within the sediments themselves. And again, uh, with our North American bias, uh, the um, initial land clearance or by the first home European homesteaders where they like would have uh, clear cut an area around their farm can lead to a peak in the pollen record of ambrosia, which most people would just know as ragweed. So that is usually um, used or has been used as an indicator of depending on when the first homesteaders arrive, but there's a marker that can be applied to a particular course. Yeah. And that would give you the idea that you have a point in the sediment core, say 25 centimeters down, that has this huge first influx of ambrosia pollen, ragweed pollen that you would use to date that period. You would know the top, the surface of the sediment was the day you took the core and you would draw a straight line between them in order to establish that chronology and assume that there's a constant um, sedimentation across that entire depth period. It's better than nothing, but uh, we can do better than that as well. Yeah, yeah. Given that is that is probably not a particularly safe assumption, and then on in the same general vein, you'll sometimes find tephra layers or ash layers that can be attributed to a specific volcanic event. So again, you'll have another marker within the sediment that, for various chemical characters, could be identified with I don't know, like the Mount Saint Helens eruption in 1981. Or something like that, if you were in that general area. But again, it's good. Yeah, and there are some there are some that are really well known. So the White River ashes are really common uh, marker, at least in the western part of Canada and uh, the western United States, especially in the north. And that's a really good indicator. And and sometimes those are really useful. So if they're in between the time periods of some of the different radioisotopes, that can be helpful for filling in the intermediate area where neither of the sort of radio chronologies are good, but they have to be present in that location. So it has to be in an area where that sediment is falling out. They may be really useful in areas that have more volcanic eruption. Not to say that North America isn't volcanically active, but compared to some areas like you might find in Southeast Asia, around the Ring of Fire in the Pacific, um, it's not going to be as broadly applicable to every kind of lake ecosystem. So yeah, so um, you know, unless you're in working in a region that has these useful relative markers. Uh, by and large, the vast majority of paleolimnological work is instead going to be relying on the decay of radioisotopes to find a mean of how long ago a particular sediment layer was deposited. And this is the meat and real meat of what we're going to be talking about today is basically a couple of different radioisotopes, the concept of radioisotopes, and um, what we're using um, in our 
given work. Even if you're not a paleomnologist, you're probably somewhere in the back of your mind kind of familiar with the whole topic of radioisotopes because it comes up in a lot of uh, general media um, and the whole concept of radiocarbon is probably pretty familiar, um, at least something you've heard before. And basically what that is, is, or what it's most famous for, is a means to determine uh, the age of uh, sediments or, or bones. And it's most famous due to its uses in archaeology. And you'll see quite often, just use this shorthand for, we need to find out how old something is in books, or television shows, or movies. Absolutely, yeah. And misused in books and movies, uh, just as much as it is correctly used. But it, it does give everyone an idea of radioisotopes and how they uh, may be usable for dating things, even if the specifics, the details of that uh, process are not clear. So we're not going to go into too much detail, but just because radiocarbon is the most widely discussed uh, means of um, dating via radioisotopes. We're going to like kind of use that as our launching point. And basically... And a really important one for paleolimnology too. Uh, we have sort of, again, our personal bias being more recent sediment work, but the vast majority of people who are working on courses older than sort of the last 150, 200 years are going to be applying radiocarbon techniques. And one of the interesting things I find about radiocarbon is that we'll talk about in a second, methodologically, it's not something that many people get to actually see the work and the analysis of. They're often samples that are sent away. So even people who may have used radiocarbon dates before may not have a really good familiarity with sort of the background of that, you know, that method. So it's important to start with that and then go on to talk about other isotopes. The approach has been around for quite a while. It was pioneered in the late 1940s by Willard Libby, who eventually went on to win a Nobel Prize for this work. But basically he um, used carbon-14 um, as a uh, marker in uh, generating ages of things. And that is based on the fact that the vast, vast majority, more than 99% of carbon Earth is carbon-12. So it's got six protons and six neutrons. And a very tiny amount has two extra neutrons, and that's what is known as carbon-14. And carbon-14 is unstable or radioactive, and it has a half-life of about 5,700 years, give or take, and undergoes beta, what's called beta decay. Um, and when it does that, uh, the carbon-14 nucleus decays into a stable, non-radioactive isotope, uh, called nitrogen 14. Where this is interesting is, or where this can be used, is that carbon 14 uh, occurs naturally and is incorporated by plants when they photosynthesize at pretty much the same proportion that it exists in the general environment. However, once something dies, no more new carbon 14, so us as pe people that eat plants, uh, once we die, we're no longer ingesting any new carbon-14, and so what is there will gradually decay over time, um, providing a, a means of generating an idea of how long ago uh, it would have died. Exactly. 
Yeah. And that's a really powerful technique for understanding the age of uh, materials that have a biological focus. So you can't age rocks with carbon-14 dating. It needs to be a biological uh, organism or something that was alive because it needs to be bringing that carbon out of the atmosphere into its cells if it's a photosynthesizing organism or being consumed uh, those photosynthesizing organisms that are fixing the carbon-14 into their cells need to be consumed by other organisms. So there are uh, challenges associated with that. So in, from a sediment perspective, you need to find something that was living, a tree or even pollen, uh, in order to determine that and has carbon still around. But beyond those uh, slight uh, caveats or slight uh, requirements, uh, it's really powerful for determining the age of sediments based on that half-life of, as Adam said, 5,700 years or so. And a key thing when you're talking about radioisotopes is their half-life, and that puts a um, constraint on the time period that they're useful for. So radiocarbon dating would be useful for samples that are less than about 50,000 years old, or about 10 half-lives, because at that point, you're dealing with something that's, that began as only uh, less than uh, 1% of the sample originally. And at 50,000 years, you're dealing with less than one one thousandth of that. So all of a sudden, uh, sensitivity becomes an issue um, in terms of being able to detect any of the remainder. And so, um, and similarly, um, so you've got a cap at 50,000 years when you're using uh, uh, carbon-14. Um, but again, that 5,700-year um, Half-life means it's also not precise enough for looking at very recent samples because if you're looking at something in, let's say, the last hundred years, uh, such a tiny amount will have decayed in that time that you're not able to measure that very precisely either. So, Yeah, so it, it basically still has all of its carbon-14 at that point. It hasn't decayed or it gets to the point where it doesn't have enough left to really be able to accurately measure it. So it's a, it's a fairly large window. But uh, not an infinite one. So even from an archaeological perspective, the earliest kind of human or uh, pre-human ancestors, like the Lucy fossil, would not really be a, a good candidate for dating with carbon-14. That's 3.2 million years or something in that range, well beyond the range that is kind of effectively usable from carbon-14. So uh, it gives you a really good timeline. And for our perspectives, it gives a really good timeline for older lake sediment cores. Uh, in North America, absolutely. There's not many lakes uh, in the northern part of North America that are older than 10,000 years. Even as you move into places that were unglaciated, we're still not going to have a lot of records that are used regularly that are more than the 50,000 year uh, timeline. So carbon-14 is a really powerful technique for uh, paleolimnology because of all those different things. But as you may remember from last week's episode when we were talking about uh, bioindicators that you want to select a um, bioindicator appropriate for the question that you're asking. Uh, similarly, depending on the time period that you're looking at, um, you're going to need to select a radioisotope um, that has a half-life appropriate to look at the time period that you're most interested in. Um, and this is um, where I was just kind of getting into a couple minutes ago, is that Radiocarbon is not going to be particularly useful if you're looking at changes in, let's say, since the Industrial Revolution. 
there just isn't uh, the capability there. So you're going to need to look at something which has a much shorter half-life. And what's largely used within the paleo-knowledge literature is lead-210, which has a half-life of about 22 years. So again, uh, thinking of like 10 half-lives, 220 years, that would take you back to pre-1850. Um, and all of a sudden, we have a pretty useful radioisotope for looking at period of interest to us in terms of large impacts from things like acid rain, industrial development, um, larger mines, etc. For sure. And it also gives us that very recent window. So if the half-life is 22 years, you can easily date things that are you know, a couple of years old or, or younger than that, that are right near the surface of the sediment. So that's a perfect radioisotope in order to talk about the more recent past. Um, just from... And the other thing about radio uh, lead and lead 210, unlike what we were talking about with carbon 14, it's not something that's a biological um, isotope that's taken into biology and then in the body of those organisms that then have to be found in the sediments. It's part of the uranium decay series, and we won't go into all of those little details. You can read about that if you want. But the idea is that it comes into the lake from the environment, and then we can see how much of that material is depositing into the lake and how much of it is decaying in the lake itself in order to see what excess there is. And that means that it's not something where we need to find specific fossils or find... Uh, material that we can date using carbon-14 methods. It is the sediment itself that is dated, and that's an important distinction and one that allows it to be used really, really broadly as opposed to trying to find things to date in the sediments. How much work have you actually done with radiocarbon dates? Most of my stuff is really biased to the almost entirely, like I've only ever been on the periphery of any stuff using radiocarbon dates. I've never actually worked with them myself. I have used, uh, I've sent a number of samples away for radiocarbon uh, for a, a few different projects to uh, a couple of different labs, including when I was at the University of Ottawa was when the uh, Andre Lalonde AMS facility uh, came online. So I've seen that facility a number of times. Um, and I guess that's one thing to talk about as we move into a little bit of details on lead 210. Well, uh, there are a couple of ways to measure that, but in general, you're not measuring the amount of lead 210, you're measuring the decay products, whether it's a gamma decay or an alpha decay. In comparison, while that was how radiocarbon started, uh, the modern method for measuring radiocarbon is to actually measure the carbon-14 uh, present in that sample using accelerated mass spectrometry. So that's a distinction as well. Uh, and up until that facility opened um, some years ago, at the University of Ottawa, there wasn't an AMS lab in Canada any longer. The one at the University of Toronto had closed. So that's the only one in Canada currently and uh, an amazing facility that uh, if you're in paleolimnology and you get a chance, they give little tours. So it's well worth having a check out when you're in Ottawa at some point. I have never been there. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, if you think of the, like when we talk about lead 210, a gamma counter is pretty heavy it weighs as much as a car maybe and it's a giant piece of virgin lead but the ams facility is so massive uh, that they had to build a building around it but lead 210 on its own is not the only uh, radioisotope that would be looking at if you're interested in recent changes um a another one that is commonly uh, referred to is cesium-137 and this is a little bit different because instead of it being a naturally occurring radioisotope it's actually a byproduct of 
nuclear weapons and above ground testing of nuclear bombs, um, which is kind of scary and cool at the same time. Um, People always find that one so interesting when you talk about it. It's one that can just bring people's imagination out uh, more so than talking about the other radioisotopes. It's just something about the vision of mushroom clouds releasing all sorts of nasty stuff, obviously, but one of these things being these radioisotopes that uh, get into all sorts of environments and can be used to date that material. So I think and, it's quite cool as well. Yeah, and that is everywhere uh, in some level. And it was useful in terms of uh, above ground testing of thermonuclear weapons peaked uh, in the early 60s uh, when there was a partial test ban treaty signed, and that was the end of atmospheric uh, testing of uh, thermonuclear weapons. And from then on, it went to underground. And I'm not sure if underwater was banned before or after that, but anyway, it gradually scaled back. So when you're looking at a cesium 137 cesium profile, if you have a nice clear peak, uh, it should be telling you where um, 1963 is. There's a downside because cesium is kind of mobile if the, in organic rich sediments, so you don't always see it. Or if you do see it, it might be fairly diffuse rather than um, uh, uh, sharp. Um, and again, uh, I've not done much in the way of European work, um, but that you would also apparently find a smaller peak indicative of fallout from the Chernobyl accident that took place in 1986. And when you talk about, you know, people kind of like zooming in on the nuclear weapons kind of issue, I'm a little bit older than you, but I remember as a little kid, because I was living in England at the time, my mum paying a huge amount of attention to the weather after the Chernobyl uh Excellent. I remember my whole family gathered around the TV because all of a sudden the fallout patterns were, I don't know, it's just one of these things I've etched in my mind uh, as a kid of um, all of a sudden the weather is really, really important today and I don't understand why. Primitive maps being shown, <laughs> geographers getting all the attention so they can yeah. make these maps in order to show the weather moving around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so potentially have two peaks when you're working in... Uh, uh, Europe, let's say, um, and but again, because of that potential mobility of cesium, it is rarely used as the primary means of dating. Is often used as a independent confirmation of any dates you might get from lead two ten or your other dating techniques. Yeah, exactly. It's often, uh, you know, the way you would establish a full chronology of dating the full sediment based on cesium one thirty seven would be a little more challenging. So it's a good way of putting that point, and you know that that is the peak of cesium activity is going to be that 1963 time period. And that's really useful to compare to the dates that come out of your lead to 10 chronology. However, they've been modeled in order to say, yeah, that's a, a pretty nice uh, chronology that's doing a good job of estimating dates in that middle part of the, the age range. Okay. So I think in terms of the isotopes we're going to be talking about in detail today, that's it. So we're talking about carbon-14, lead-210, and cesium-137. Um, and that was our primer on uh, radioisotopes. And in the next segment, we're going to be talking just more generally about some questions that can come up. All right, so for the rest of the episode, we're going to be talking just more casually now that we've got this baseline of information out there in terms of how... Uh, 
dating of Cinemacore's works, at least on a general level. Um, and uh, I just had a couple of points in general that I thought would be interesting launch points for a little bit of back and forth. The first one being the potential error in these measurements, which is, you know, might be kind of inside baseball, but what is I find really interesting a lot of the time is uh, how precise some of this data is sometimes presented. Absolutely. The, the way in which, I mean, this is a method and when you apply it to your sediment core, you are interpreting data. It is an interpretation just as any other analysis is. There are error bars associated with it. And one of the things I definitely, uh, some people who know me have heard me talk about this before, uh, that really gets under my skin a little bit is when dates are presented without any reference anywhere in the paper to the uh, sediment depths that they're associated with. It's, you know, it, it's okay, obviously, to plot where the scale of your stratigraphy is by date. That's fine. But if there's nowhere else where those, ideally those depths would be on the same figure and you can see them, otherwise they could be in a paper, you know, somewhere in the paper itself in order to look at the difference. And really, as I think we were kind of going with this other than that tiny little rant that Josh just went on, uh, is that there are errors associated with them. And you don't very often see the error bars actually addressed in the way in which their dates are used to interpret some of the other proxies in the sediment core. If you see a figure of just the dates by depth, you may get error bars on that figure where you're outlining the chronology itself. But in terms of actually applying that to the um, stratigraphy or the other core data, uh, it, it's not often considered that you know there is a, a fair range that that interval may represent in terms of time. And as you get further down into the, the lower sediment uh, core intervals, that error is going to increase because there's less of the radioisotope or the activity is lower in that location. Um, and especially at the bottom, just, just for context, we're talking decades here, not years or months. We're talking about, you know, when you... 1850 it's going to be 1850 plus or minus 20 years absolutely uh, you know so but you'll many times see a particular slice presented at 1851 yeah exactly you know, or some something like that and it's like that's not you know it's not totally incorrect i mean it it may be true but it just as likely may not be the the case so and <clears throat> so this has always been something that I don't know. When I hear a talk and dates really crossed over, it gets my gears a bit because same, yeah. If the dates are not solid, then the amount of faith that you have in the rest of the work is massively shaken. And um, you know, yeah, I think this is, one of the things the that I, of, go, go ahead. Uh, one of the things I always find is that people seem to be. Um, you know, almost embarrassed by their chronologies in some cases. You know what I mean? Like the idea that, oh, the, you know, I, I, I have to say something about the chronology that may not be defensible because I really want these dates to align with these events that I know occur in the history of the, like the lead to 10 activity and profile and dating chronology that comes out of that is inherent to the system. You didn't do anything about that or wrong about that when you were taking your cores or processing the cores or any of those things. That's the nature of that lake. 
and its environment and how it has developed over time. That is the best you can do. You obviously do your best when you're prepping sediments and using those to come up with the chronology and to establish that, but that is the way that lake is. Uh, there's nothing mm -hmm. to be done about that. Yeah, and I think part of that stems sometimes, I mean, at least you and I are often working with graduate students that might be dealing with just like one or two cores, and they're like, ah, oh, these dates, they're so... I don't know what the word would be. Yeah, and I get it because, you know, the cores are, ex you know, it's expensive to go to the Arctic and take those sediment cores. And if that chronology is not as robust and perfect as you want it to be, then that that can be a problem. Um, but, you know, there's nothing to be done about that. You can't, I can't see you lead to 10 with my naked eye as I pull that core out. So you, you just won't know. You have to do your best. Take a good core because, you know, you don't want to mix it all up. Uh, but beyond that, there's really not much more to be doing to be done until you get it back to the lab. Yeah. So again, keep in mind this error associated with all this stuff, and then kind of building off on that. One thing that I is coming more and more into, I don't know, the general things I think about when you're looking at uh, lead to ten profiles going forward is this: these techniques were developed in the '70s. You know, we're like. 40 to 50 years past at, it, at that point. So it was used as a period of marking, you know, industrial human impacts. Um, 50 years on, you know, it's pretty rare to get a basal date that is prior to 1900. So, and, you know, yeah. I've almost as a, a routine decided not to publish dates that are even before like 1910, 1920, I, the error gets very large on those. And I'm, I'm not so confident that it, you know, it really represents the number that you put in. It's hard to, as we said, put in those error ranges. So that's sort of where I'm at on, on my uh, personal research on that topic. Yeah. And, you know, and then at that point, you know, you're making assumptions and the assumption becomes fair and fair. You've got a good lead 210 profile and like the top 20 centimeters that gets you back to 1900. And then, yes, there may have been a catastrophic earthquake that dumped a huge amount of sediment in priorly, but probably not unless you saw, you know, like you'll have seen the core, would have seen the same structure throughout and you go, yes, the next 15 centimeters or so are being laid down at like roughly the same pattern. So, yes those are older than 1900, but you're just out of the realm of saying how much older they are. For sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, so I don't know, I, you know, I'm, my interest in dating is peripheral, very much as a tool as opposed to uh, a research, research focus itself. So I have no idea if there's much work being gone, being done on any potential successors to lead 210 not to like move the clock forward a little bit I, that's you know. yeah that's a really good question i don't have a an answer to that I, there are obviously people who that is their study their topic uh, including at university of ottawa they have a bunch of people who are uh, experts in dating materials and coming up with radioisotopic techniques uh, and something will come to replace that or we'll yeah, get better be something out there that has a half-life of lead let's say 40 years instead or sure. 50 years instead. Yeah, for so sure. Like, but uh, Especially as is, our, our mass spectrometry skills get better. You know, it used to be that you couldn't actually, you needed so much mass of material to do radiocarbon dates. And now you can do it on like a, a small sample of pollen. So we get much better and 
not only will that help us identify new uh, radioisotopes we can use, but it'll allow us to maybe not be uh, not confident in that 1910 or earlier sediments. We may be able to actually push that a little further back if we get better at figuring out how to measure things like lead 210 as opposed to gamma decay. And uh, yeah, because we didn't really get in too much into like how this is actually measuring, being measured and you know what it means when we're talking about alpha versus gamma dating. And I think... You know, it's almost an episode on its own in terms of getting into real nitty gritty detail. But when you're talking about alpha dating, you're looking at the actual emission of, I guess, helium nucleuses. That's right. Basically. Yep. An alpha particle. Uh, so a helium nucleus. The actual, actual particles coming flying out of the samples and then counting how often that happens. Whereas most of the light 210 stuff uh, I have any exposure to is looking at gamma dating, where you're actually looking at instead of particles coming fly off, the actual um, emissions as the decays occur. And we didn't talk much about the physical of how this is measured, but we're talking about small samples of sediments, like a couple of grams of dry sediment uh, or less than that um, in a tube, um, but basically inside a well detector and one measurement will take about 24 hours uh, in our protocol. Um, so if you want to um, uh, date 10, 15 samples in a uh, particular sediment core, you're looking at two weeks of machine time to get one chronology. Yep, exactly. In a machine that costs several hundred thousand dollars, uh, weighs as much as a Volkswagen, um, yeah, it's impressive to to have uh, these things around, and and these aren't something. There's only a couple of in Canada. Uh, Pearl Lab has four of them, I believe. Um, there there are a bunch of them all over the place, and not all made, you know, in a few different styles and that sort of thing. So they do exist, and uh, there's lots of uh, potential to date a bunch of sediments using those. But they do take a little while. It is a couple weeks to do a core, and and that. Um, can slow the workflow down. There's lots of people taking sediment cores, so there's lots of uh, interest in getting onto these counters, and they run continuously all the time. So um, again, when we're talking about these uh, things, it's interesting to keep in mind how these measurements are actually done. And what we're looking at is a small amount of sediment, like less than a gram in many cases of dried sediment in a tube inside a gamma detector, which has a big lead shield around it. And one of the cool things about these shields is that they're made of lead and you're measuring radioactive lead. Um, so it's important to basically have uh, uh, what is known as virgin lead. And where does that come from, Josh? Uh, virgin lead it means that it's not giving off any more uh, radioactive material and there's no, none of that on the planet anymore. Uh, being currently mined, it had to have been mined before the Industrial Revolution, and it's already lost all of its uh, radioactive particles. And the only place to find that is in the bottom of the ocean, in the hulls of uh, shipwrecks, because they use lead as a ballast agent to to right the ship. So shipwrecks that went down before the Industrial Revolution are the source of the ballast lead that gets melted down and turned into the shields for our gamma counters. Which is which is really cool. And how much of this stuff is out there? Will they ever run out of that? Um, well, probably. I mean, I, uh, there's a I fair number. I, I only know on like a trivia level, 
But in terms of like the mechanics of finding it and getting it and yeah. storing it, I don't know anything about Yeah, that. I don't either. Uh, there's a lot of shipwrecks, obviously, and there would be a fair bit of lead in the bottom of the ships, and no one really wants it. It's not like this uh, Spanish uh, galleon went down and everyone went looking to recover all the doubloons that were in it. No one really went looking for the lead. It was there. Uh, so there's probably more of it than you might imagine, but not an infinite amount. Oh, those morons had no idea of the true scientific value of the of the shipwreck. Good for all of us. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, it's not something I've never thought about. Like I've never, because being a scuba diver and having dove a few shipwrecks, I've never really thought before to like dig around in the hold and look for ballast uh, material. I've never had my paleoluminologist brain on at the same time as my scuba diving brain. But I'm curious if. Uh, if I ever think of it, if I'll, uh, if you might be able to see it, because they would be fairly large bars. Like they'd need a lot of ballast to keep a ship from uh, uh, foundering in uh, rough seas to keep its weight low. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Okay. So well, that's that's. A, I think that's a pretty good overview of uh, lead to ten dating without getting into uh, some of the more specific details related to how you go about establishing the date associated with each of those activity uh, levels for the radioisotope or its gamma emission. I think that probably is a episode in itself to dive into some of the different models that are used to come up with the chronology, the age depth relationship. Uh, so that's something that we'll uh, have to do a bit of research on, read about some of the different ones that we aren't as familiar with and then uh, put together in a separate um, episode. But it gives an overview of how we use lead 210. Yeah, um, and moving beyond lead two ten and the isotopes we're talking about, there is other more exotic stuff. Uh, there are other uh, anthropogenic anthropogenic radionuclide, radionuclides um, that are also associated with um, uh, nuclear weapons, like uh, plutonium and. I don't even know how you say it. Is it Americum or Mericium? Americium, I believe is how it's pronounced. Americium. Yeah. That's how I pronounce and it. Something, you know, so it's... But they would be very much like... rarer. Yeah, for sure. It's said out loud before. But they would be just but, like cesium in the same way in that they would be... They have different half-lives, so they may have different ranges in terms of the age, but they are produced by anthropogenic activities only, emitted usually through some sort of radioactive uh, explosion, particularly if it's going to be broadly distributed around the planet. Nuclear weapons testing... Uh, and or accidents like Chernobyl would be the only real source of that. And then you would look at them in the same sort of way. Though I believe for some of those uh, exotic isotopes, they're not counted in the same way they are looked at in other devices like uh, ICPMS, those kind of, those kind of um, other mass spec uh, methods. Okay. And then, you know, at the end of each episode so far, we're kind of getting into the realm of things I have heard of but yet know nothing about on any deeper level. Um, the last one we had on our list to talk about uh, was optically stimulated luminescence dating. Yeah, so that I think that's I a really cool one. one. To you. I, uh, yeah, uh, that, I'll have you. I, I think I may have written that on the list, um, but don't know a ton about it either. It's used for a range of different ages. So one of the things about OSL uh, dates is that they can be used for a lot of different ranges. It's not a radioactive decay type of measurement. 
in the same way that all the other um, methods like cesium and lead and carbon-14 we've talked about. The idea and really where my knowledge of it uh, ends is that what is looked at in what you're inferring basically is the last time that quartz grains, quartz sediments, which make up, you know, is the basis for most sands and things like that. So there's lots of quartz in the environment and you're measuring the time date when that was last exposed to light. So light will stimulate some sort of change in the structure of the sediments. They then get buried in the mud and you can tell the time period at which uh, it was last uh, exposed to the light or it was last at the surface and then got incorporated in the lake and use that in order to determine the age of that uh, of that sample. So, okay, we're kind of getting to the end of our discussion about the weird and wonderful means of dating dirt collected from the bottom of lakes. That's right. So exciting. <laughs> but And so critical. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're three episodes in. Um, this was kind of like, because dating is so fundamental to all paleo work, it got its own really focused episode. And uh, next time we'll be talking about other physical and chemical indicators found within sediments, um, uh, more broadly. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah. A few so, little notes, maybe, uh, you can now find us hopefully, uh, by the time this episode is out on all of your favorite podcast servers. So iTunes and Google play, uh, Google music, whatever it's called, uh, and stitcher and a few others. So look for us there. If you want to not have to visit the SoundCloud page, um, other than that, remind them of the email, uh, remind me of the email. <laughs> so the email is core ideas podcast, all one word at gmail.com. And you can send us questions, suggestions, hate mail, anything to prove that there are people actually listening to the show is welcome. And on top of that, you can find uh, a summary of the episodes and an episode archive on our website at core ideas, all one word dot ajezorski, A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I dot C-A. And that's why we're hosting all this stuff for now. Um, but until next time, this has been Core Ideas. Thanks for listening and see you next week-ish. Yep, see you next time. Thanks again. <laughs>